0: Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has accused Russia of genocide. This comes after the civilian toll in Ukraine sparked global outrage, as photographs detailing atrocities, such as bound bodies shot at close range at a mass grave, were said to be found in areas retaken from Russian troops.
1: The news is causing the Biden administration to consider intensifying sanctions against Russia, and so we'll keep. Looking for more updates um, on all of that, so I I was looking at the images are again horrifying. There, you know, images from war are always horrifying. War is horrifying. Um, I'm seeing, you know, a lot of people. We have to be careful because we don't know exactly who or what is responsible, and it is a moral crime, no, no matter what. Um, And there is, you know, no doubt that there are atrocities being committed. Um, by Russian forces, right. there are likely bad things being committed by various aspects of Ukrainian forces as well. Perhaps uh, we don't know. So we have to right. be very sober minded and, and seek more information. I, look, I'm, I'm seeing people on social media. You know, c- c- and I can't tell from, from looking right. at how people contextualize these things, saying like, well, this was actually the Azov forces or this was the. Right. And, and you know what? You, everybody's got to take a deep breath. Don't don't get like, well, no, it's we actually don't know for sure. You know, listen to to, as more information comes out. But uh, but I I, and we should be careful about I mean, we should roll out sanctions if like we think that's the right thing to do to stop this invasion. But like, don't do a knee
0: jerk in response to pictures you're seeing online. I think that's a really key point because, right, there are two questions here. One is, you know, is the evidence real? You know, is it is it is it? Fabricated as propaganda by one side in order to elicit emotions, or is it real? Like th- th- those are important questions right. that journalists need to get to the bottom of. Right. But then your your second point is the key one. It's our war policy, our sanctions policy, should be not be should not be driven by the answer to that question. <laughs> right. But if you know if there are atrocities, you know those. Atrocities should be prosecuted. They should be, they should be punished. Right. People need to be held accountable. But war is hell. Right. There, there are going to be atrocities on both sides. You know, uh, not, to, not to both sides, right. the situation, but both sides always commit atrocities. I don't think there's ever been a war in history. War is history. an atrocity.
1: So it's always a little weird when people start saying, oh, yeah, yeah I, we don't like the way you're fighting this war. Right. What are you, when you fight
0: war, you kill people.
1: Right. I, I don't want war, I don't want war fought at all. It's not. You make it nicer, prettier. It's still war.
0: Right, and some some armies are more vicious when it comes to slaughtering civilians yes. than other armies are. Yeah. that's that's to be sure. But that doesn't answer the question of whether or not yeah. the U.S. should get involved in a direct military conflict with Russia. Like let's let's say it was revealed. The end of today. That yes, every single one of those civilians that has been uh, photographed and we've, I- images have been shared around the world was in fact killed by Russian soldiers while they were bound and gagged. Absolutely atrocious. That would be absolutely atrocious. But it would not mean that the U.S. needs to enter into a war uh, right. with with Russia over it. And that's a, a, a you know, it's it's heartbreaking. But, so, but people so are being killed be, so in, in horrible
1: yes. conditions everywhere, uh, all, not everywhere, all sorts of places right. all around the world. And it is, that does not mean it is the U.S. government's right. duty to, to intervene, to do something about it. That would commit us to waging right. uh, humanitarian wars all over the globe. Right.
0: And we're not prepared to do that. And Which brings us to the one piece of decent news that this world has had in a very long time. On, on Friday, uh, the Houthis and the Saudi-led coalition agreed to a two-month ceasefire, the, the U.S.-backed that Saudi-led coalition. And this came after uh, Houthi drones had, uh, had uh, bombed Abu Dhabi a couple of times, and then, and then they struck this oil field in Saudi Arabia, and then they offered a ceasefire. And so it, it seems like it was the punching back that got the attention. And also... There's a sense among uh, foreign policy of people here in the U.S. Uh, that the U.S. wants to put a lot of fires out right now. Like, it's almost like these proxy wars are a luxury, and we can't afford luxuries right now. Yeah. So there's extra pressure being put on both the UAE and That's Saudi right. Arabia to say, you know what, there's a, there could be a wheat famine coming. Like, we, we just don't need this right now. And the Iran deal is very close to getting put together. And Iran is backing, uh, you know, supplying the Houthis. And that's why it's become this proxy war. And so uh, that, that too, probably played into this two-month ceasefire, which hopefully will become a permanent ceasefire. Yeah, hopefully. And so Zelensky had a little show at the... Zelensky uh, showed up at the, appearance
1: at, the, at the At the
0: Grammys, yeah. Yeah, let's let's roll, let's roll Zelensky at the Grammys here. Yeah.
1: Our musicians wear body armor instead of tuxedo. They sing to the wounded in hospitals, even to those who can't hear them, but the music will break through anyway. We defend our freedom to live, to love, to sound. On our land, we are fighting Russia, which brings horrible silence with its bombs, the dead silence. Feel the silence with your music. Fill it today to tell our story. Tell the truth about the war on your social networks, on TV, support us in any way you can, any but not silence. And then peace will come.
0: Yeah. So it's what,
1: still weird to me, though, to see uh, him involved in, in the in the Grammys, or like there was talk of having him a presence at the Oscars. That's right. Something about that is just weird to me. Right. Um, it, it doesn't feel like. I mean, his remarks are perf- perfectly fine. I, I understand why he's wants to make an appeal to the American people. It just seems it seems weird. Like why? Like why is the Grammys the right format for that? Why do, it, it feels both like a kind of performative politics that we all, so often see in Hollywood. Like this is what you're supposed to be thinking. Right. Here's a you know now a, a and a, a lot of quick, that
0: is so empty, and then to pair it right. with something that is so real right. is jarring in a way. You're like wait a minute. We're supposed yeah. to. Have, this is supposed to be superficial stuff here. Yeah. Um, and we're, whoa. We're, yeah, it was
1: I thought it was <laughs> it was very weird and unnecessary. It also shows
0: just how effective he is. And the world isn't quite ready for you know, an an actor and a performer mm-hmm. to be a wartime president under assault. And th- I've heard a lot of uh people kind of on the on the left and on the far right uh complaining about U- Ukraine's successful ability to kind of yeah. whip up so much support for them. But a central part of that is that they're being invaded. Right. And all around the world, the human condition is to root for the underdog. So even if you didn't have the already kind of set up geopolitics of the Ruskies being the bad guys, the fact that one country is invading the other has just completely stacked the propaganda deck on the the side of the people being invaded. Everyone's going to root for the people who are just defending themselves against an invasion. And then you throw on top of that that you have kind of an A-level... Performer, like literally, the performer, like that's his career up until becoming elected president. What,
1: one other thing I wanted to mention before we wrap is that it was interesting to me to see these photos, these horrifying photos, actually on social media. Yeah. Uh, the the I, I guess there's either an exception or, or does not that does not violate these images of people dead. It clearly uh, violates it it's like twitter's decided it's in the facebook i actually i've yeah. only seen them on twitter i don't know if they're on facebook maybe they are maybe they're not must have decided they're in the public interest or they're newsworthy but obviously we again we, we don't know for sure which who's done what and what the exact condition it we we have people's guess you know we're hearing from various sources of information but we don't know like i can't i can't sir i can't tell you right exactly who do i don't know i'm not there i can't I can't verify the sources of these information. Uh, right. This information, so it's uh, and, and in the past, since social media has been so like, oh, well, that might be false. So forget it. It's it, it can't be seen. It, it's a little. I, mean, it, yeah. I think it actually shows the short sightedness of that approach. Uh, it, obviously, it's better to ha- you know, have the information out there and then right. have responsible people say, we don't know for sure. You know, take this with a grain of right.
0: salt. Right, and it would it would have to be a pretty elaborate setup for it not, for them. Not to be real, but stranger things have happened. I
1: I think, right, I think they're real, but I don't know, you know, are they, are all their arms tied behind their, 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 these pictures are being described as they all have their arms tied behind their back. I think that looks debatable in some of these photos, but I mean, they're, they're dead bodies. I I don't believe that they are staged bodies by any stretch of the imagination. People are absolutely dying. The country's being invaded. Right. Um, There might be more contextualizing information to emerge. Nothing... Contextualizes or makes justified or fine what is going on. What is going on? Is what's, not fine, what's
0: Twitter's right? what's Twitter's rule on that kind of violent content? Like, yeah. do, do they take down ISIS videos and that sort of thing? Yeah, or they I generally more... think they do. Um, so it's it's interesting. Right.
1: Yeah. I don't know. They're taking That's... a page out of Facebook's book, which is you can. Plan to assassinate right. <laughs> uh, uh, Putin now. It's okay, now. Yeah, it's just—I mean—they're making these rules up on a day-to-day basis.
0: Yeah, so and right—it shows the the politics of it as well. Yeah. Like, it depends on who is who's doing the killing and who's being killed. Right. Who's appearing at the Grammys?
1: Right. <laughs> Appealing for support. Yeah. All right. We'll tell you what's on our radars coming up next. A new explosive report from Vanity Fair uncovers more revelations into the origins of COVID mystery. The report extracts from more than 100,000 leaked documents and details how, quote, an organization dedicated to preventing the next pandemic found itself suspected of helping start one.
0: Vanity Fair, contributing editor and author of A Bottle of Lies, the inside story of the generic drug boom. Uh, Catherine Eban is here to discuss. Welcome, Catherine. Thanks for having me. And first of all, ter- terrific work. You've been on this. You've been on this beat for a while now, but this was uh, excellent, excellent piece of uh, journalism. And you know, if, if you could just uh, you know flesh out for people uh, the what what you think are the the key takeaways.
2: Well, I think for me, reporting this, the key takeaway is really that um, the NIH, which through a sub-grant, Funded research at the Wuhan Institute of Virology never seemed particularly interested in getting to the bottom of where COVID came from. Uh, and there is evidence that they set out to construct a single narrative, uh, which is that it came from a market and from an animal and from a, a zoonotic incident. Um, but there were you know, questions at the highest levels of government about whether there. are Uh, COVID could have originated from some kind of a lab incident in Wuhan. Uh, The CDC director, Robert Redfield, raised those questions. But yet in meetings, in discussions and confidential emails, uh, there is real evidence that they kept on, uh, you know, excluding the possibility of a lab leak from consideration in order to enshrine a single narrative.
1: One of the more striking revelations from the investigation is how evolutionary biologist Jesse Bloom had written a preprint, a study that was not yet peer-reviewed or published, containing sensitive admissions about the National Institutes of Health. Quote, Bloom's paper was the product of detective work he'd undertaken after noticing that a number of early SARS-CoV-2 genomic sequences mentioned in a published paper from China had somehow vanished without a trace. The sequences which map the nucleotides that give a virus its unique genetic identity are key to tracking when the virus emerged and how it might have evolved.
0: And so the report goes on to read, quote, In Bloom's view, their disappearance raised the possibility that the Chinese government might be trying to hide evidence about the pandemic's early spread. Piecing together clues, Bloom established that the NIH itself had deleted the sequences from its own archive at the request of researchers in Wuhan. Now, he was hoping Fauci and his boss, NIH director Francis Collins, could help him identify other deleted sequences that might shed light on the, the mystery. And so you, you write about this conference call that happens uh, between Bloom and Fauci and Collins, and, and you, you say that they were each allowed to have seconds, which sort of felt like an, an old school duel, uh, which is an unusual way to get to the bottom of a, a scientific mystery, to have a, have a conference call duel. Can, so tell us a little bit about how that conference call went and why it's so important.
2: Yeah. So, you know, Bloom thinks he is getting on this Zoom call so that there can be a scientific collaboration into the question of these missing sequences. Uh, And instead, he is hit with this wall of hostility uh, about why he's undertaking this research, how it's unethical to even examine these sequences if the Chinese researchers wanted them deleted, uh, and then One of the scientists in attendance, Christian Anderson, makes this extraordinary suggestion to him, which is that he is a screener at this preprint server, and he can delete or revise the preprint without evidence of his having done so. Um, And Bloom says, you know, given the contentious nature of this meeting, uh, none of those suggestions seem appropriate. Bloom ends up so troubled about what happened at this meeting that he documents it uh, in a detailed account, which I obtained and is embedded in in the report. Um, You know, so the question is, why weren't they interested in looking at sequences that maybe could shed light on the origins of COVID?
0: And Fauci's response that you include in your story was pretty fascinating. Like he says, after, I guess, kind of the dust has settled from this kind of outburst, uh, he says, just for the record, I want it noted that I did not ask you to do, do, to edit your article. Like, it seemed, yeah. so w- w- what was your understanding, w- what did you take away from that, that, that <sighs> kind of line from Fauci?
2: Well, I mean, you know, it was clear that apparently both Fauci and Collins, according to Bloom's account, said something to that effect. So... My interpretation of that is after reading the room, they want to make clear uh, to Bloom that they're not advocating for something that could be perceived as, you know, a cover-up of some sort. Um, but you know, why the meeting was structured in this way uh, is really a question. Why isn't the NIH leading the inquiry? into where COVID came from, as opposed to circling the wagons. I mean, that's really the issue here.
1: Yeah, and, and this is, I think, what you're reporting suggests that, it's you know, it's, it goes beyond just a sort of ignorance, like, the, the you know, this was not a possibility, so we can't, so we're not going to explore it, but it starts to get into, we you know, we don't want to discover the truth, or, or, figures involved in this acting like they wouldn't want to discover the truth because it might reflect badly on them?
2: You know, it's hard to avoid that conclusion. Um, It is clear to me that scientists have, uh, some top scientists have felt like the answer could potentially implicate science and they are very keen to shift the narrative Either that or they simply just don't want the questions being asked. You know, the fact is there's tremendous uncertainty. Uh, nobody's got some sort of smoking gun in hand. N- nobody's got an infected animal in hand mm-hmm. that can make all of this clear. So in the interim, there are very uncomfortable questions being asked about science, about scientific funding, about how much visibility um the NIH or EcoHealth Alliance, this sub, uh, this nonprofit I write about, how much visibility they had into what was going on at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Uh, the answer is probably not as much as they think.
0: Yeah, and we're going to talk about that a little bit later in the show, but that's something else that you, you know, shed some new light on, that that it seems as if what was going on inside that laboratory was a bit more of a black box uh, than... Dazak and some of the other scientists had had previously led on. What did you what did you hear from EcoHealth Alliance uh, staff, former former staff, about what may have been possible, you know, inside that lab?
2: Yeah. So I interviewed um, five former EcoHealth Alliance staffers, and uh, as one of them told me, Peter Dashik did not have as much visibility into what went on at the WIV as he led on. Um, They had a Chinese national working at EcoHealth Alliance whose job was to sort of interpret for them what was happening in the laboratory, Uh, but that person didn't have full visibility. And basically, EcoHealth Alliance, which is the entity that is providing these subgrants to the Wuhan Institute of Virology, um, you know, it's their job to ensure that the grant money coming from the NIH is being used appropriately, that safeguards are being followed. Um, And, you know, this staffer basically said, well, we just had to take their word for it. You know, that this was based on a relationship between the lead coronavirus researcher at the WIV, uh, Shi Li, and Peter Dashik, who was the president of EcoHealth Alliance, and the attitude was, um, you know, trust us because they had this longstanding
1: relationship.
0: Trust us. <laughs> and, and so as you think about it, where, where do you come down at this point, having looked into this, uh, for so long, if you were kind of forced to guess, uh, at the origin,
2: you know, I have some thoughts about it. I, I, I won't really go beyond what is in the article because that is really what we're able to print and, uh, and ensure the accuracy of so. um, But it's clear to me that there has been a significant lack of transparency uh, at the top levels of science in the US, I will say that.
1: Mm. Catherine, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: We'll have more rising right after this.
0: What's on your radar, Ryan? Well, last week, Vanity Fair published a new investigation of the origins of COVID after obtaining some hundred thousand internal EcoHealth Alliance documents. The article is a thorough profile of EcoHealth, which is the organization that got millions from the NIH and funded gain-of-function research at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Now, the article adds some new pieces to the puzzle. News related to the lab leak hypothesis has been, has been arriving in a kind of drip, drip fashion over the past year or so. And with this new report, it's worth stepping back to see what the full picture looks like now. Now, over time, I'd come to believe that a lab leak is not just a plausible explanation for the origin of the pandemic, but actually more likely than not. Now, Given what Vanity Fair has uncovered and combined with what we already knew, I now think it's extremely likely that it came from the lab. There's no definitive proof yet, but what we now have could fairly be called a circumstantial slam dunk. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. So for background, we already knew, thanks to documents obtained by my colleagues at The Intercept, that EcoHealth was funding research that mainstream virologists call gain-of-function at the Wuhan lab. We also know, thanks to a document leaked to a group of online pandemic detectives called DRASTIC, that EcoHealth applied to DARPA for funding for research that, if completed, could have produced a virus exactly like the one that launched the pandemic. So that means the key question is this. Did the lab do some of the research outlined in that proposal? If they did, the act of performing that research would be a prime opportunity for it to escape the lab. But that's where the trail has gone a bit colder, and speculation has filled the void. So EcoHealth claims it never performed any of the research. Yet scientists The Intercept spoke to said it would be highly unusual to apply for funding for research before having done even a small amount of it. But that leaves us with a he said, she said. Now, the Vanity Fair story moves the question forward in an interesting way. So again, for background, the DARPA grant was put together in collaboration with Ralph Barak, a UNC virologist known as one of the best in the world, and it drew on controversial gain-of-function research he'd done in 2015 that set off alarm bells in the scientific community and that even he acknowledged was extremely risky. Now, the Wuhan researchers were also heavily involved in putting that grant proposal together. What we also now know is that the Chinese military was collaborating with the researchers in the lab, something that had previously been denied by Shi Li, the Chinese scientist who ran that part of the lab. Here's how Catherine Eben of Vanity Fair put it. Quote, if China's military had been collaborating with the Wuhan Institute of Virology scientists, it's unclear if Peter Dajak would have realized it. He had far less visibility into... Uh, into the lab than he led on, a former EcoHealth Alliance staffer told Vanity Fair. The work being done there was, quote, always an enigma, unquote, the former staffer said. The nonprofit had hired a U.S.-based Chinese national who helped, quote, interpret for them what was happening inside the WIV, but we had to take everything at face value. It was more, accept what it is because of this relationship between Xi and Dajia, quote, he doesn't know what happened in that lab, said the former staffer, quote, He cannot know that. Yvonne quotes virologist Simon Wayne Hobson saying that the DARPA proposal was, quote, basically a roadmap to a SARS-CoV-2-like virus. Wayne Hobson noted that if the research had the blessing of somebody like Barrick, then, quote, it is possible the WIV would have wanted to copy what it viewed as cutting-edge science. Wayne Hobson added, that doesn't mean they did it, but it means it's legitimate to ask the question. So in other words... EcoHealth had no idea what research was going on there, and it's entirely logical that the scientists there would have put the paper into practice. So Dazak's denial is more than useless. It's actively deceptive. The question then is how likely is it that these Chinese scientists working with the People's Liberation Army used Barracks roadmap and took the viruses out for a spin? Well, here's an even better question. Why would they not have done that? All the incentives are lined up. Doing groundbreaking research using a top virologist roadmap is a sure path to advancement. Making technological breakthroughs based on Western IP or research is how the Chinese economy grows. It would be stranger if they didn't do some of that research. Now, we also know that the pandemic started a little more than a year after the proposal was submitted. The timing all lines up. So add to this the fact that the Chinese government has been generally uncooperative and has been removing evidence from public databases, which we talked about earlier in the show today. Now, it's, of course, possible that this is all an insane string of total coincidences. But while there's now a completely coherent theory of how the virus jumped from the lab, there's nothing similar on the natural side. The proponents of the natural origin theory haven't yet identified how the virus made the jump, despite a big New York Times story that claimed as much in its headline recently, but then backed away from it, lower the story. In the past, scientists have been able to figure out the origin species pretty quickly. And now look, researchers should of course keep investigating, as there are still questions we don't have answers to. But as of now, a straightforward explanation has emerged. The U.S. funded pioneering gain-of-function research in 2015. Those researchers collaborated with colleagues in Wuhan. They continued the research there. It slipped out. We got a pandemic and millions of people died. That can't yet be said with absolute certainty, but it's now far and away the most likely explanation. And I think this part about the Chinese military and also Peter Dajak's lack of visibility into the lab is crucial. Because he's been out here denying, okay, yes, we had this blueprint for a virus that looks exactly like the one that caused the pandemic, but we didn't do that research, we promise. It's like, well, how do you know that you didn't do that research? And it turns out, according to a former staff, he would have no way of knowing that.
1: I'm starting to think this thing might have come from a lab. <laughs> <Starting> it just <laughs> might have. It just might I'm have. kidding, of course, because yes. I, I have thought that already. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And it also, the key that the evidence on the other side has not gotten right. better. We have not found that origin species. They did, uh, for the previous uh, SARS outbreak, find the, the species pretty quickly. And it's, it's been longer than that time here. So that tells you something. And then, yes, we, we have them talking about doing research like this. And as you said, they, they probably would have done at least some preliminary work Before applying for that grant, it wouldn't just be, oh, we would do this if you gave us this money. It's like, no, we would like to get this money,
0: but we're doing this. Right. The lab already has, they would like to get the money, but the lab already has researchers. It already has money, too. (laughs) It already has money. The PLA has plenty of money. Yeah. And one of the reasons that the PLA and Chinese researchers do work with Western scientists is to get access to some of the best minds in the world. There's some brilliant Chinese scientists, some brilliant yeah. North Carolina scientists, Barrack being one of them. And so if, if they're working with Barrick on this proposal, sure, why wouldn't they?
1: And that's so often right. how, how grants work. It's like the thing is already being done, and then you say, right. well, I might as well apply for this, right. this money fits. that fits what I'm doing, and then right. that'll yeah, that'll be great, but you're still doing it anyway.
0: right. And so, as we talked about earlier, there's a ton more in this in this story that's, uh, you know, extremely interesting, and, and a lot of, and, and I think there needs to be a lot of accountability for people who, kind of, actively suppressed this mm-hmm. this discussion, uh, you know, whether you know from Fauci on down, uh, because it's becoming increasingly clear that this is the most likely explanation at this point. Yeah. And there was a period of months. Where you
1: were not allowed to acknowledge this on Facebook.
0: Couldn't even acknowledge it. It, Which is
1: pretty crazy.
0: Right. And and in order to get the proof, you would need access to a lot of information that is in the hands of the Chinese government. Right. Which we may not get. Which we may never get. Yeah. Um, And it it feels like they feel responsible, but both, you know, if if we funded it and pioneered it, and then they are the ones that kind of like spilled it. It's a. It was a team effort.
1: Unaccountable uh, scientists, the sort of public health—I mean, the very people we have ceded massive new powers and authority to—to to deal with this pandemic, were the were the kinds of people, incautiously uh, doing experimentation, do not doing uh, oversight, not aware of what they're doing, that very well may have caused this thing right. that has then. Pr, you know, prompted the public to cede them more power.
0: Right. And the and the article also talks Orful. about, and this has been written about before too, that the, the UNC lab has it, apparently, you know, world-class world class kind of safety precautions in place. I still don't think you want to do research that could end the world or create a pandemic. But if you're going to do it, do it in a place that has like DEF CON level right. security. And as far as we know, I mean, there was no pandemic in 2015, despite this dangerous research. Thank God. Uh, according to all of the reporting around the Wuhan lab, it's not, you know, it's more, you know, right. if you've seen pictures of it. It looks like right. it's in a strip mall. Right. Like, that's not exactly where you want again, what, of the most again, dangerous. What is the
1: upside of this research? Right. What did we yes. get out of it? We... Their goal,
0: yes, their goal is to be able to predict where pandemics are coming from. <laughs> they're coming from labs where they're doing research. <laughs> but even if it wasn't, it came from a, the, a wet market eight miles away and they didn't see it coming. <laughs> <laughs> and right. that's where there was next a, door It was the center of their research. So if they can't. So either they're complete failures or they created a pandemic. Those are the only two options. Those are the only two options. Yeah. I agree. No, I'm looking forward to what's on your radar up next. Robbie, what's on
1: your radar? The Washington Post thinks it's time for a reckoning. That's according to an editorial the newspaper published over the weekend titled, fittingly, the Hunter Biden story is an opportunity for a reckoning. There's no question that that's true, but the entity that needs a reckoning is the mainstream media, Democratic politicians and their allies in big tech, because these were the groups and individuals who desperately suppressed a legitimate news article that, it turns out, was true. Most of our viewers are less easily duped than the mainstream media, so I'm not telling you anything you don't already know when I remind you how poorly the MSM behaved after the publication of the New York Post story just before the 2020 election, which alleged the Post had obtained a laptop belonging to Hunter Biden that hinted at all sorts of lobbying, influence peddling, and possible corruption. Russian disinformation. That's what the mainstream media claimed it was. That's what Joe Biden claimed it was, citing intelligence officials serving as Democratic Party apparatchiks. And based on those claims, social media went ballistic. Twitter blocked users for sharing the story entirely. Facebook's algorithm suppressed it. Ostensibly, the social media companies were concerned that the information had been obtained illegitimately through hacking or was itself misinformation. We now know that both those claims are false. The information had not been hacked and it was real. Recently, and belatedly, I should note, the New York Times finally confirmed what most everyone with even a shred of independent thinking has already realized. The laptop is real. The story was real. Hunter Biden really was part of many quasi-ethical, if not unethical, influence campaigns. One might expect this would prompt some reflection on the media's part. Well, we're getting that from The Washington Post. Sort of. The weekend editorial makes notes of all the MSM's misdeeds and really lays into social media. The Post laments that, quote, Twitter blocked the story altogether, pointing to a policy against hack materials, and suspended the New York Post account for sharing it. Facebook downranked the story in the algorithms that govern users' newsfeed and fear for fear that it was based on misinformation. Now the Washington Post and the New York Times have vouched for many of the relevant communications. So that's what the editorial says. It continues, noting that, quote, this series of events has prompted allegations of a cover-up, or at best, a double standard in the treatment of conservative and liberal politicians by mainstream media and social media sites, end quote. Now we're getting somewhere, right? So here's the moment the mainstream media admits they were at fault, admits they were duped. Well, not quite. Here's the next line. Quote, yet there was reason in this case for reluctance on the part of the publications and the platforms alike. And what was that reason? Quote, Both had been the unwitting tools of a Russian influence campaign in 2016, and it was only prudent to suspect a similar plot lay behind the mysterious appearance of a computer stuffed with juicy documents and conveniently handed over to President Donald Trump's toxic personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani. End quote. So that's where we're at. The media's default is to assume that anything damaging to Democrats is the handiwork of a Russian influence campaign. Note that we're not even talking about whether theoretically Russian-sourced information is true or not. The hacking of Clinton advisor John Podesta during the 2016 campaign, for instance, was indeed done by Russia in all likelihood, but the information we learned was true. It was real. There's this very weird and very wrong tendency in the mainstream media nowadays to treat everything as wrong or false if Russia is the origin of it. But that's just sheer laziness. It can be part of a Russian-influence campaign and also be correct. After all, much good opposition research is correct. My point is the fact that Russia tried to influence the outcome of a U.S. presidential election does not tell us anything for certain about the quality of the information with which they are trying to influence us. It's not like we can just say, oh, this was Russia, ignore it, as much as the Democratic Party and the U.S. intelligence community would clearly like us to do. One might have expected a Washington Post editorial titled The Hunter Biden Story is an Opportunity for a Reckoning to acknowledge that and apologize. It doesn't even come close to doing that, however. Their concluding line is this. The lesson learned from 2020 may well be that there's also a danger of suppressing accurate and relevant stories. May well be? Yeah, I think that might be a problem. Glenn Greenwald says it best, noting, they think a story is only confirmed once The New York Times and Washington Post say so. Lol. The evidence of the archives' authenticity was overwhelming from the start. Many of us staked our careers on it. Meanwhile, Biden Chief of Staff Ron Klain responded to a question about Hunter Biden from George Stephanopoulos this weekend. Let's watch.
3: Uh, George, the president is confident that his uh, family did the right thing. But again, I want to just be really clear. These are actions by uh, Hunter and his brother. They're private matters. They don't involve the president. And they certainly are something that no one at the White House is involved in.
1: Maybe so. I don't know that I would trust this media to report that, even if it was the case. Uh, or maybe they 'll wait years and then decide it 's okay to discuss it anyway this this was just a this was a great opportunity for a Maya culpa from the washington post that 's what I thought I was getting when I read yeah. the headline that 's actually how I, descri- I saw it described by people on social media and then i 'm reading it and i 'm like, okay, justification for what they did, justification for what they did, justification for what they did and then maybe perhaps information shouldn 't
0: be suppressed
1: that 's all you come up with Jesus
0: right. so it was disappointing right and you know so it it does it right goes back to 2016 if you want to get yourself into the heads of these folks like they they genuinely felt like well they did not want Trump to win in 2016 and right. they they felt that their coverage of Hillary's emails contributed to Trump winning and that was their reckoning like they, they felt like they had done something wrong because Trump had won which it, which is the wrong place for the media Right. To position itself in the relationship right. between the voters, Hillary Clinton had done then, something wrong. <laughs> That's why yes. Trump won, right? And so, and so, you know, there was a lot of reporting on what was found inside those emails. There was, a lot, but a lot of it was newsworthy, right. and some of it, for instance, was damaging, like the excerpts to her Goldman Sachs speeches. Right. She had multiple ways around that. She could have not given, you know, seven hundred thousand dollars worth of speeches to Goldman Sachs, knowing that she was about to run for president. Or she could have released the transcript of those speeches in full after she gave. Like, some people do that. It's like, hey, I'm going to take this $700,000 because it's there for me. Uh, but here, here's exactly what I said. She did both. She took the money and then didn't wasn't transparent about what she said. So then, boom, it comes out like two weeks before the election and it makes big news. And so then the media went through this reckoning about how they would handle a situation like this if it were to arise again and then they think they see it coming again to me the real solution here for the media is to say it doesn't actually matter if the material was hacked or leaked what as long as it's true right then the media should report on it if the federal government wants to go after leakers that is is, they're within their rights there if people want to change the laws around whistleblowers people you know, can lobby to have those laws changed. But those are two separate things. Uh, and the, inter- the Intercept Brazil, uh, which Glenn uh, founded, uh, produced an extraordinary amount of incredible reporting on Bolsonaro and, and corruption around him uh, based on uh, documents that it was eventually revealed were hacked. You know, a group of hackers had had suspected that there was immense corruption among these judges and prosecutors who had put in uh, who had put Lula in prison, and they went and got those documents and then leaked them to the press, doesn't make them untrue. Right. And it's good that that information became right. public because you know, wrongs were righted, and he was freed from prison. Right. So the media should just back off of this you can't whole... Just say, you can't just right.
1: say, well, that's Russian,
0: so ignore it. Right.
1: Russian is not synonymous with false. Right. It's just synonymous it with Russian. You,
0: you, it you could be false. check it out. Just like as American
1: information, right. any information could be false. Right. Check it out, but just saying, well, Russian... Doesn't, right. doesn't get you there, and the media has to stop doing it. And this was, unfortunately, another example of them doing it yeah. in what should have been their apology for doing it last time.
0: Yeah. All know, right. We'll have uh, more Rising right after this. Yes, we will. Former Alaska Governor Sarah Palin is jumping back into the political arena. Palin, who rose to prominence in 2008 as the late Senator John McCain's vice presidential candidate, announced that last Friday she will run to fill the late Congressman Don Young's seat in the last frontier state. Joining a field of over 50 candidates in Alaska's special election,
1: Palin vowed to, quote, fight the radical left. She already has the biggest supporter of all, former President Donald Trump, who endorsed her on Sunday, issuing a statement saying, quote, I am proud to give her my complete and total endorsement and encourage all Republicans to unite behind this wonderful person and her campaign to put America first.
0: Joining, joining us to discuss are our panelists, Democratic strategist Colin Rojero, and Inez Stepman, a senior policy analyst at the Independent Women's Forum. Thank you to you both.
4: It's good to be here. Morning.
0: And so, first of all, have either of you ever seen the interview that Sarah Palin did with Donald Trump back in 2016? She was at, what, OAN, I think? She was like, was that right? She was a host of... If people haven't seen it, they've got to go back and watch. Trump's eyes are bugged out he's like Trump is like what is this person saying I can he, he like cannot follow the word salad coming out of her mouth and you're like Trump is the king of word salad and he couldn't couldn't keep up there um, so Inez what's your what's your sense of uh does her does her name recognition and Trump's endorsement make her the front runner here or uh not so much this could be a closer race than we think
5: Well, I think in a traditional primary, definitely. Um, Alaska's primary is weird. It's uh, ranked choice voting. Um, It's a top four system, regardless of party. And as you mentioned, there are 51 candidates. So that makes it a little bit difficult to to really predict. I do think that she has a good shot in in sort of the modern GOP. I mean, in many ways, she presaged a lot of the trends um, of the Trump GOP, right? So in one huge way, um, she has that image of the, the grizzly bear mama, um, at a time where parents are probably the most important constituency for the GOP. Um, and, and also she made a name for herself. Let's not forget, she made a name for herself before she was vice president um, nominee uh, for vice president for John McCain. And um, she made a name for herself fighting the establishment within Alaska. Um, and there was all the famous Bridge to Nowhere stuff. Um, she, she definitely was always sort of an outsider candidate even um in her early success as governor of alaska um and, and that was necessarily not necessarily like a, a sort of um, hard right position she wasn't necessarily hard right anti-establishment before she came to to um sort of national prominence so i think there's a lot of ingredients that actually she can pull on her record and then of course she was an early a, a endorser of trump and now he's returning the favor
1: but uh colin you know she did resign right as governor she didn't complete her term. She, she resigned. Uh, does, does that kind of thing, you know, are the people of Alaska going to remember that and maybe punish her for that? Uh, perhaps not. Perhaps. I mean, this is a, you know, a primary in Trump's endorsement and her star power will kind of get the job done. But uh, she, she is in the, the strange or novel position of having like sworn off public office, like having left it. Um, so how does yeah. that how does that affect this race?
3: I think it depends on how much other primary candidates remind people and where they see her as an actual threat. If you consider name ID going in, she certainly has a, a distinct advantage. But name ID and previous history may not always equal additional uh, benefits and or votes in this particular case. I, I you know the the idea of a Sarah Palin candidacy again to me seems a whole lot like. Uh, another Fast and the Furious movie. Do we really need to see this again? It's kind mm-hmm. of the same story over and over again. That is uh, a little bit of a train wreck. So um, I, 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 I'm not confident that she will win. I think she has a little bit of a, a distinct advantage. We'll have to see how much uh, as, as we get going forward here. And, uh, and she did swear off public office. So it, you, know, it, you start public office and you quit uh, because the job is too hard. I, I'm not sure you deserve a second chance.
0: And and as there's sort of like two camps uh, in the Republican Party at this point, there's kind of the Murkowski camp that is, you know, kind of the old old school still still trying to like work with Democrats to to get some things done in, in Congress. And then there's the other camp whose entire agenda is basically just like owning the left. And as. Uh, owning, the, owning the libs, and as, or as yeah. Sarah Palin put it, fighting the radical left. So, which, which one of those do you think is dominant now in Alaska, and how does the rank choice voting work out? In other words, you know, do, you, do you think that P- Palin is going to have a ceiling that she'll have a hard time getting past because of rank choice voting? Or do you think that actually a lot of people in the Murkowski camp, if they can't get a Murkowski type, then at least they'll, they'd rather have somebody who will own the libs?
5: It's, it's really difficult to say because of the specifics of the Alaska primary, but let's not forget, you know, Murkowski lost a primary in the Tea Party era. She won her seat again only by a writing campaign and on a name recognition. So this is this is like not uh, the typical structure of a primary, which is why I'm having, uh, you know, difficulty at all making that call, because otherwise I would say, I mean, I don't agree with your characterization of it as only owning the libs, um, but, but absolutely, I think a more, um, you know, sort of Trumpy stance, particularly on cultural issues, uh, is really the heart of the GOP. And what's interesting is, is that cultural stance actually has a lot more crossover appeal um, than, for example, the, the GOP's economic positions, right? I think what you're actually seeing is the culture war is the big tent and that a lot of these cultural issues around education, um, around, um, for example, what's happening in Florida with with the, uh, the education bill there, those are actually issues who, that bring moderates um, onto the side of the Republican Party, so kind of in reverse of what GOP consultants were saying in Washington D.C. for the last 10 years, which is, you know, lead with the lower taxes stuff um, and and put the social issues to one side. What we're seeing is actually the social issues and the cultural issues are coming to the fore. And I think Palin could be that kind of candidate. And in most primaries, I would say actually that puts her in a very good position. But because of the uh, particularities of the Republican. Uh, primary or or the election here in Alaska, um, I, I do think that there are some elements like this rank choice voting. Voting does favor somebody who can pull in, um, you know, sort of more cross party votes. So it's 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 complicated um, to to make a prediction. But I think generally the GOP is much more in that camp uh, than it is in the Murkowski camp.
1: Yeah, I, I agree with that, and I th- I think it's interesting to to observe how Palin really exited the first time from the from from politics at a, you know, a moment of, like, the low watermark for the GOP's fortunes. I believe she left in 2009. Um, you know, there's a, the, the, the kind of Obama takeover happening, the, you know, very, very uh, bad times for, for the GOP. And then shortly thereafter, you have the Tea Party. And, and now we're, you know, we're 10 years later, where I, I agree with you, be, in, in part by by going hard on uh, sort of culture war issues or whatever you want to call them, Republicans now look, you know, prepared to have this massive, massive blowout uh, victory. So, so, you know, Colin, as a, as a Democratic strategist, you know, what, what advice are, are you giving to Democrats to, to uh, is it about, uh, you know, how, how, talking about these issues in a different way or, or trying to shift the focus back to to other issues where the gop isn't you know just totally racking up points on the scoreboard we've the critical race theory uh, all that kind of stuff uh you know what is your approach
3: yeah I, look it, i i think democrats over the past couple of years uh leading from the white house have done a poor job of talking about the accomplishments that they've actually had and how they've impacted people's lives there's not been a a very focused very easy to understand messaging construct around that why is the infrastructure bill important? How was the American Rescue Plan actually saved businesses previously and, and, and in present day? And, and, you know, things like the insulin bill, they need to talk about things, Democrats need to talk about things that actually practically affect people's lives. And, you know, look, I agree with the Inez that, you know, Republicans over the past 10 years had to step away from social issues because it wasn't good territory for them. So they made some up. So they made up critical race theory being taught in schools, which it's not. It's a joke. And they decided they wanted to then, you know, attack the LGBTQ community once again. I, that's not going to last very long. And I, I disagree that who voters actually want the assignments that, are, that are coming back. Oh, from wait, you guys work, can't
0: you guys cancel each other out if you talk at the same time.
3: And it's not, it's not, going, to, it's not going to work. And I would say especially attacks on women's health care it's not going to work. That stuff is eventually going to burn itself out and it'll burn itself out quick. But I don't think that we're in any kind of watershed movement that we haven't seen before, right? Like the tea party was a reaction to the Obama election. Right. And like we have this again, potential reaction to the fact that a Democrat was elected president. It's not unprecedented. So I don't think that it's anything we haven't seen before. Democrats just have to make a consistent argument about how they are helping people and doing more than just passing tax cuts for wealthy folks.
0: And as you want to respond to any of that, critical race theory uh, made up in the in
1: the classroom. <laughs> I sure. think I know your uh, views on
0: this, which are yeah, mine yeah, as right. well. But go I mean, ahead.
5: This is- This is a silly talking point, honestly, from Democrats and from the left. Um, You're not disagreeing with me, you're disagreeing with parents who are looking at their children's assignments. After a year and a half, for a lot of parents of virtual school, this is the first time not only are they angry at school districts for not reopening schools in many states um, for months and months after things like, for example, casinos were reopened. Um, But even aside from that, you're looking at parents who have been looking at what their kids have actually been learning. They've been given a window into what social studies class actually looks like now. Um, and whatever you want to call it, and we can have a debate, and I'm happy to have a debate about whether or not it's critical race theory and what the intellectual roots of this are. It almost doesn't matter to parents. They're looking at concrete examples. They're looking at affinity groups um, in their their kids' schools um, that divide kids up by race and teach different curriculum to different races of kids. Um, they don't care what you call it. They want that gone from school. And with regard to the Florida bill, um, it's not an attack on the LGBTQ community, it's literally just preventing teachers from talking about sex and gender identity um, from kindergarten to third grade. And you know what? I think if the GOP stands on those issues, because they are absolutely happening and there's a real anger that is being um, coming up from parents when they go. To these school board meetings, and they're expressing that um, in, in, in not only in the school board meetings, but in elections. It, look, it, it won us an election um, in in Virginia. And it won us an election in a place where there are a lot of crossover votes. Again, this isn't a concern exclusive to the right. There are a lot of moderate and even Democratic parents who are looking at this material in the schools and they are not okay with it. Um, So, you know, you can continue to pretend. As far as I'm concerned, Democrats can continue to pretend this isn't happening uh, for as long as they want because I think the longer they pretend it isn't happening, uh, the, the better it is for the Republican party.
2: Yeah,
3: that, I, I think we're happy to actually tell the truth, which is it's not happening. And parents weren't upset about I, I, curriculum I, I, being taught in schools. All the time. Totally they, they, they weren't upset about race being taught in schools because it's always been a part, and, and I would argue not enough, a part of American history as it's taught in its reality. What you have in the, in the case of the Florida bill is people not being able to identify that genders actually exist or that sexual preference may actually exist. What about third graders who exist or second graders who have two moms, who have two dads. So they're just left out of the conversation now. And so you're creating a society in which you are calling people others from the beginning. If you cannot actually discuss something that is a real part of society, you're just really creating an ignorant society. And that's a dangerous thing for everyone. Nobody says that we have to highlight sexual identification, but teachers should certainly be able to address it if it is brought
6: up.
1: Yeah, it's I mean, look, I have issues uh, for sure with the Florida bill. I've, I've talked about them on the show, but that said, I, I have seen critical race theory being taught in the class. It literally says critical race theory on the slides of the things they're being taught. So I have to disagree on that one. Uh, Inez and Colin, thank you so much for joining us.
3: Thank you. Thank you. And we'll
1: have more rising right after this. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki will leave the White House this spring for a job at MSNBC. That's according to an Axios report Friday that sources confirmed to The Hill. Now, when asked Friday about reports of her departure, Psaki had this to say.
7: I have nothing, again, to announce about any conversations or any future plans.
1: Um, And
7: at whatever time I leave the White House, I can promise you the first thing I'm going to do is sleep and spend time with my three- and six-year-olds, who are my most important audiences uh, of of all. Um, But I would say, Kristen, that... Uh, again, I uh, have done, uh, have taken the ethics, legal requirements uh, uh, to the highest uh, very seriously uh, in any discussions and any considerations about any future employment, just as any White House official would, and I have taken steps beyond that to ensure there is no conflict.
0: The Kristen she'd be speaking to there would be Kristen Welker of MSNBC, which is... <laughs> well that's interesting. It's <laughs> <is> pretty awesome. <laughs> Deputy editor at Newsweek, Baye Unger Sargon is here with us to discuss. Welcome, Baya.
4: Thank you.
0: And so, uh how stunned were you at this uh at this revelation?
4: <laughs> how stunned were you, Ryan?
0: <laughs> I just shocked. U- utterly utterly shocked. How could like Wow! Yes, I mean, uh, uh, really, it was, administration
1: was... spokesperson going to MSNBC. What's could, next? Just doctors could... playing golf? Yes,
0: absolutely. Could not have seen this coming. Yeah.
4: <laughs> look, I was a little surprised that it wasn't CNN, and actually a little bit. I mean, you know, I think that that spoke well for CNN because I, you know, we read that there were also talks going on there about a, p- a potential position there. I mean, look, it's not the case that it's impossible for somebody who was once a spokesperson for a president to be a good pundit or even a good TV host. I mean, there's plenty of people who are doing the job well, Dana Perino, for example. But I, for starters, the, the president is still gonna be in office when she takes this job. And it, what's so funny is we all know what she looks like when she's lying on behalf of the president. Is that really the brand that MS MSNBC wants to be like leaning into, right? It's so strange.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I guess my take though is Look, the job is the the job she does currently is, you know, chief propagandist for the administration. The job she'll be doing when she works for MSNBC is <laughs> propagandist for the administration. <laughs> i, I th- This is a pretty transparent one, right? I mean, like the revolving door between cable news and and various White Houses. I think is a problem in general, especially when it's like intelligence officials who are then, you know, speaking to some secret knowledge they supposedly have to convince you of things you're not aware of. But she just she just kind of like frames things in the way most favorable to Joe Biden. And, and that's just like we all know that's what she's doing. So I guess I'm not there's a there's a certain transparency to it just by the nature of the job she does, I guess is what I'm saying
4: right and it's not just um you know the president but you know who is the msnbc audience it's the people she was speaking to when she made that comment you know after the failure of the voting rights act passing you know a couple months ago when she said you know go get a margarita, you know, go take a spin class, right? That is the audience that, you know, MSNBC is catering to, right? So I think in that sense, um, her ability to spin things for an administration that's speaking to a very highly educated coastal liberal elite um, must've made her seem very attractive to M- MSNBC. I-, I don't think that, I think, I mean, I believe her that there are no ethical problems. I don't think that she was doing anything wrong, you know, pursuing her next job or thinking about what her next move would be while she's in the administration. I think, Robbie, what you said is more accurate, which is that the revolving door makes it such that, you know, there are no strictly legalistic ethical concerns here because the move is such a natural one. It's much more a cultural problem that we have, that 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 is such a smooth glide rather than some sort of strictly ethical breach.
0: Right. Given the world that we have today, it makes perfect sense that a Democrat would go from the White House to MSNBC or a Republican would go from a, you know, Republican White House to Fox News like that. But it's, it's just kind of more revealing about the fact that we do live in that world, and that's probably what's kind of un- unsettling about it. Um, I'm curious from, although Nicole Wallace being the exception, jumping from the Republican side over to the <laughs> right. Democratic side. I'm curious what you think by, about uh, George Stephanopoulos, who was you know the, a very early pioneer in this in this move, but has actually. You know, when, when, you know, he went from the from the Clinton White House, then into uh, into journalism, but became kind of like a mainstream journalist, like a not a. But I'm curious, do people think of him as a Democratic mouthpiece or as, as somebody who's on the left? I've always <laughs> seen him as a centrist, like oh. down, down the middle. But maybe people who are on the right think of him as like some far lefty. I don't know. What, what's your read on it?
4: Well, I mean, the White House he came from was pretty centrist, right? So uh, (laughs) no conflict there. I mean, like I said, I don't think it's impossible to have had a job with the administration and then come out and become actually a good journalist, become somebody who's able to do the work well. I think George Stephanopoulos, by and large, is, you know, Pretty much doing that, sort of down the center, um, you know. But like we were saying before, in some ways, the center is very much aligned with the Democratic Party, right? So in that sense, there's no real conflict there. Um, and also, you know, I, I think that the difference is is when the president is still um, in office, right? To go from, you know, Robbie, just like you said, you know, propagandizing for him from the White House podium to propagandizing for him on MSNBC. I mean, you know, we understand. Yes, of course, that's going to be the role that she takes as a pundit right on MSNBC. But is there going to be any recognition for the audience that that's the case? Like a lot of people who turn on, you know, their TV in Mm -hmm. the evening, right? How 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 keyed into this are they? Like, is there going to be a, you know, a disclosure like, oh, I was saying this on behalf of the administration a week ago. And now I'm saying it to you like, you know, (laughs) in some more, you know, whatever journalistic sense or not. Um, I think that's a really important question.
1: Yeah, I just assume it'll be the same. She'll have to say the same thing. It would be interesting <laughs> if she leaves the administration, joins MSNBC, and then it would be interesting either way. Like it, maybe she's right. much more progressive or much you know further right. left she's even like, than not she was allowed her, to be under. Yes. Yeah. yeah, that would be that would be that would be fascinating. Um, but uh, but and I guess it'll be interesting just in the meantime. since It's pretty clear she's doing this. Like, how does she handle? Uh, you know, the, the reporter, I guess the MSNBC reporters in the room uh, for now. But uh, look, I, I mean, she's, a, she's an eloquent take-haver, so she'll make a, a great pundit. I, I just I think it's crazy to expect her to be anything more than that, but, you know, fine. What, what more can you say?
0: Right. Yeah. Is the show going to be called Socky Bomb?
1: Uh, that's a good question. Yeah, what should, what should her show be called? Well, or she's not going to have her own show,
0: right? She's just going to be a. I thought it was. I thought she's going to have a peacock show and then a contributor. Oh, she's, she is
1: going to have her own show. Is, oh d- wow!
0: Well, I mean, yeah, I, I think did, it's still I... it's still being worked out, but, yeah. but yeah. that
1: that's what. She's not taking. Uh, my understanding is she's not taking Rachel Maddow's hour because uh, and Rachel Maddow is is planning to leave, but they don't know who's going to replace her yet. That's my understanding. Is that your understanding, Bacha? Yeah. Yeah.
4: Yeah. I, I mean, there was. T- I mean, I, I, my understanding was that she was think, interested in it, and there were talks about it, but that it sort of, in the end, she's not going to be taking that position. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That's an important position. What should they do, or where should they look to try to fill um, that role? Do you think? Because you know, Rachel Maddow is their is their per, prime person is their person that, the network so closely identified with yeah. her. Maybe less so now, but but for so long. So it's a it's a pretty key role to fill. Uh, what do you, what do you think they should they should do about it?
4: You know, when people ask me, like, how should we if you were the queen of journalism in America, like what were the Czar, what would you do? i would I always say the same thing, which is, You know, there would be one question that would be the first question I would ask for every interview, and it would be, do you like cruise ships? And if they say no, they're out. Because like, there are all these things that are just dividing lines between out of touch elites and the rest of Americans, you know. I would love to see somebody have that spot who did not go to Harvard or Princeton or Yale, or Columbia Journalism School, or any of these other places where, you know, increasingly journalism is called for. Somebody just from the heartland, somebody from a working class background. Maybe somebody without a college degree, you know, a person of color from an inner. City, like there's so many talented people Wait, out there. What, what who, was that?
1: What was the question?
4: Um, do you like
1: cruise ships?
0: Cruise I mean, ships. Gro- growing yeah. up, I th- growing up, I thought of people who could go on a cruise as like super rich.
1: Yeah, yeah. And what's so, the right answer to it? Cruise
4: ships are something that like. Middle class, working class Americans save up for years and then go on cruise ships. and Right? Love yeah, them I and love cruise ships. I want to go on a cruise. We <laughs> hate them. Exactly. It's like you know, it's something normal people. I get it.
1: Not- okay, right. You're saying normal people exactly. do aspire to go on cruise ships yeah. versus like. Right, Liber- okay, I get it. But the, the wealthy progressive exactly. elites are, like they have their vacation home somewhere. Like, I get it. Yeah. Like, Cruiser for uh, the, I like, get it. I get what example. you're saying. I agree, Disneyland,
4: okay. Disneyland, right? You have yeah. now this whole fight happening about Disney. It's like these these liberal elites, would ne- they would never dream of going to Disney World, right? It's mm-hmm. full of people who don't want their children to be learning about, you know, trans uh, mm-hmm. tr- transgenderism in kindergarten, right? And it's like this whole this whole conflict happens in these on these spheres that are sort of popular. Right by the
0: other people yeah well and disney's insanely expensive too
1: actually yeah we should do a separate discussion about what's yeah. going on with disney right now uh, the the conservative war on disney it's like bring me the head of mickey mouse it's kind of kind of funny uh anyway bacha we'll discuss that uh soon i, I promise bacha thank you so much for joining us
7: thank you. thank you
1: and next up kim iverson will be
0: with us so stick around Kim, what's on your radar?
6: Well, another round of Pfizer documents have dropped. This is part of the 340,000 some odd pages the FDA and Pfizer wanted to release over the course of several decades. But instead, the group requesting the documents sued and a judge ordered the FDA to make them available by the end of this year. Well, each round of documents is to be delivered on the first of each month. So this past April 1st, no joke, over 11,000 pages were released. Between these documents and another document released on March 24th to the group, a group called Public Health and Medical Professionals for Transparency, we've learned some bombshells. The first bombshell in the document is that natural immunity works and Pfizer knows it. The clinical trial data showed those with previous infection of COVID had no difference in outcome than those vaccinated. In the limited trial, none of the vaccinated nor those with previous infection resulted in severe disease defined by either the FDA or the CDC. They were broken up into two different groups. The FDA and the CDC define severe COVID slightly differently. The CDC roughly defines it as anyone needing hospitalization, whereas the FDA defines it as anyone needing supplemental oxygen. Either way, there were zero cases of severe COVID in the natural immunity group, whether they were vaccinated or not. And their own data also showed that natural immunity was statistically identical to the vaccine against infection. That's what their data showed. Yet rather than say people with natural immunity don't seem to need the vaccine, which is what they've been saying in Europe, for example, Pfizer instead spun their conclusion and said, quote, final efficacy results show that the vaccine provided protection against COVID-19 and participants with or without evidence of prior infection with SARS-CoV-2. Another revelation from the documents was that adverse reactions were more frequent and more severe in younger groups. The document reads, quote, reactogenicity, and adverse events were generally milder and less frequent in participants. in the older group compared with younger group and overall tended to increase with increasing vaccine dose. Older is defined as 55 and older and the study itself was for 16 and above. So the side effects were more frequent and more severe in people under 55, even though we know the younger you are, the less likely you're to experience severe COVID. According to The Lancet, 16-year-olds have a 99.993% chance of surviving COVID. A 30-year-old is at 99.943%. At 50, their survivability is 99.572%. Only once you hit 60, does it drop below 99%. A document procured during the dump was a consent form for a children's clinical trial of the Pfizer vaccine. The form is from December 15th, 2021, so only 15 weeks ago. And it interestingly states some facts that have been labeled by the mainstream media as being misinformation. The consent form lists several possible side effects, including myocarditis, which many of us know about. But the document says the rate of occurrence is 10 in 100,000 people, and they don't specify age or gender. So that's much higher than previously reported rates of one in 50,000 people, even then, we know the bulk of those cases are in younger males so when controlling for age and gender the risk significantly increases the consent form also states quote the effects of the covid 19 vaccine on sperm a pregnancy a fetus or a nursing child are not known and this is something that has caused a lot of younger women and parents of teen girls hesitation which they were demonized over and people have worried that there could be long-term side effects of affecting fertility Despite these scientists admitting in this consent form that they simply do not know, it has been espoused as fact that the vaccines don't have any adverse effects on reproduction whatsoever. But the fact is, we simply don't know. Another data, another idea condemned as a conspiracy theory is what's called an ADE response antibody dependent reaction. This is when a vaccine ends up triggering a worse illness than what the person would normally experience. And doctors like Robert Malone, who have been sounding the alarm of this as a possible reaction to mRNA vaccines, have been demonized and smeared, yet the consent form clearly states, quote, although not seen to date, it cannot yet be ruled out that the study vaccine could make a later COVID-19 illness more severe. So if it were really not even something to be concerned about, the form wouldn't even bring it up. Yet here it is saying they can't rule it out yet. One other interesting admission from the document dump is this statement, quote, clinical laboratory evaluations showed a transient decrease in lymphocytes that was observed in all age and dose groups after dose one, which resolved within approximately one week. So in plain English, this means white blood cell counts dropped in that one week. After the first dose of the vaccine. So this is leaving a person with a weakened immune system for a week after getting the first dose of the vaccine. So there's a lot of things that we could speculate from this, like, is this why we saw sudden spikes in cases in countries that began mass vaccination campaigns and with people, weakened immune systems, were they all catching the virus a lot uh, more vulnerable to catching the virus suddenly for that little period of time? Also, uh, since people weren't even considered partially vaccinated until a week or so after getting the dose, did the skew the rate? If you got a bunch of immunocompromised people uh, for that week running around and then catching the virus and then they're considered unvaccinated, is that fair? These are questions that that kind of leads us towards. But in the least, it seems like this would be good information for people to know about when you want to know that your immune system is perhaps compromised for a week. You'd maybe be more careful. We're at least learning about it now, even though we didn't know about it before, but now we're learning about it because of the data the FDA and Pfizer didn't want released. We're finally seeing it. So interesting stuff coming out in this, in these document dumps. Um, and, and, you know, And I think obviously at this point, a lot of this is just hindsight, right? There's, well, although there are still a lot of implications, there's a lot of places still doing mandates. Um, a lot of the colleges are still doing mandates a lot. And now we see from these documents that from the, the trial, Pfizer even said there's more adverse reactions and they're more severe the younger you are and the more you dose. And we just don't have long-term data yet. And they admit that in these documents yet. I think there's, I don't know if it was, you know, I feel like when I go back and look at all the statements that Pfizer made, I don't feel like they said much different than actually what's in these papers. It's just that they didn't, they didn't correct when, let's say Fauci or other, or FDA spokespeople, or, you know, uh, M- Rochelle Walensky, or when they kind of said things that were maybe a bit counter to this, they didn't come out and say, that's actually not accurate. You know, like, so I'm not sure if it, you know, what, like where the blame then goes. And also I think we need to look forward and say, maybe we should be reevaluating a lot of the decisions, especially when it comes to younger people.
0: The farm, ph- yeah, pharmaceutical industry is is not, Used to transparency, like it's not their it's not their preferred approach, and right. I you know I, and I think particularly in a pandemic uh, where public health becomes almost as important as the way that you're specifically treating it because you you need the public to be in, invested in it and to trust what they're being told by public health officials and by everybody involved, transparency becomes that much more important. So they really shouldn't be. I, I really wish they had not fought this and you know, the more the more pressure on them to release all of the evidence of mm-hmm. efficacy, all of the evidence of side effects, everything. Just you know, just get it out there and let people let people let's let people study it. And and given that you know a combination of things that
1: A, you can certainly still uh, contract the virus and spread it if you're vaccinated. Maybe you're less likely to do so, but (laughs) vaccination is not standing in the way of, or or is any other mitigation effort standing in the way of a wave coming through and everybody getting it, because we've seen that happen uh, at least twice now. Given that, and given that that the severity for younger people of the disease, it's not, it's not, that bad, that there's low, uh, very low death rate among uh, young children, um, uh, among the under 18, he- otherwise healthy people uh, 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 in the younger age categories also not uh, not in, in that much trouble. Given, given those realities, I don't see how you can justify the, the requirement for vaccination in many of the, the settings where they're most likely to be required, schools, university campuses, as you mentioned. It just, it seems, it it seems, and given then also, you know, what you're raising about side effects and that even if it's, even if they're mild side effects, even if you're, you know, kind of sick for a day or something and then that's it, that still might end up being, for this age category, that might end up being worse than the disease, or maybe it's not, but why shouldn't it be your choice or, you know, something you talk to a doctor about, it has to be required, that seems so, it seems so hard to justify that. For, yeah. for the groups of people most likely to have the mandates in place. You know, yes, beyond beyond 50, if you have an underlying health condition, absolutely. I, th- I think the calculus totally shifts. But, uh, but that's different when we're right. talking about the people most likely to have vaccine mandates.
6: Yeah, I mean, the older people, we know the older you get, the more severe COVID is for you. In fact, if you're 100 years old, so I was looking at the chart of survivability, and if you're 100 years old, you're still, believe it or not, more likely to survive COVID, but not by much. It's 57% survivability right. once you hit 100. But it starts to drop below 99 at 60. Well, these people are retired, you know, in this age group from 60 to 100. You're looking at the vast majority of them not even being working. So you're right. They're not even subject to mandates. But what these, what these, uh, what this late, latest data dump really showed us, especially with them admitting they don't know the long term side effects with fertility or sperm or anything like that. They don't know the long term. They even said in the previous document dump from March, uh, there was a document that showed they don't know the long term side effects of even myocarditis once it subsides. So they said, yeah, most of the cases, you know, the patient subsided, the symptoms were uh, gone, but we don't know long term what that means. They, they, they state that. So to have younger people and then, and then these documents to say, yeah, the younger, you know, younger people and the more doses, it seems that they have more adverse events. Why would we then have young people mandated to do this? Yeah. Uh, it just doesn't make sense when you go through all these documents. And I think this proves that. And I think for a lot of those parents that have been fighting mandates, I think this document dump will be very consequential to them in that battle, I think in the legal battle moving forward. So I think that's where these documents come in handy is is in the also, you know, their admittance to certain side effects like myocarditis, we know that now. My big question is, are they paying the legal the medical bills? for these patients who ended up with myocarditis? Or is that just, sorry, that's your risk. You, you took it, you right. knew that there was that risk, did you? I don't know. So uh, why are they not then forking over the cash for those those medical bills? I'm not certain if they are or they aren't, but I tend to think they're not because I know that they were released from any sort of liability. But um, so I think that's what these documents are going, to, are going to mean moving forward is maybe they will be used in the anti-mandate uh, legal defense and parents uh, trying to prevent their children from being vaccinated,
1: yeah. possibly. Okay. All right. Well, thank yeah. you, Kim. We'll have more rising right after this.
0: 8,000 workers at Amazon's Staten Island warehouse have successfully voted to form the retail giant's first unionized workplace ever, an upset victory that rocked the world of organized labor this weekend. The David versus Goliath come from behind win was made possible by an aggressive guerrilla style organizing campaign from the Amazon labor union.
6: An independent grassroots group led by former Amazon employee, Chris Smalls, who was fired in 2020 for organizing protests over unsafe working conditions. The ALU formed only last year and beat out Amazon's multi-million dollar union busting operation with only $120,000 raised through GoFundMe. Here's Chris Smalls' first speech after the vote was counted. Well, I can tell you now, uh, we, we got the juggler. We went for the juggler. And we went for the top dog because
3: we want every other industry, every other uh, business to know that uh, things have changed. We're going, we're going to unionize. We're not going to quit our jobs anymore. And uh, you know, this is a prime example uh, of what what the power that people have when they come together. Chris, what's your message to Amazon executives today after this victory?
1: Oh, they're going to have to negotiate with their workers now. Status Coup News' Jordan Cheriton has been on the ground outside the JFK 8 warehouse with ALU organizers for over a year now. He said Friday's results constitutes one of the biggest victories for the working class this century. Journalist and CEO of Status Coup News, Jordan Cheriton, joins us now. Welcome back to Rising. Hey, thanks for having me. So you've been there. So, w- w- you know, what are you seeing? What's uh, what, what's the mood? Everybody's really excited about this outcome. And, and, and talk to us a little bit about what you're seeing.
8: Yeah, I think um, it's a mix of kind of uh, celebration, pop and champagne, uh, <laughs> disbelief among uh, a lot of the organizers uh, mixed with. All right. Back to work because they actually have uh, both another vote coming up at the warehouse across the street in Staten Island. And uh, obviously, they want to, they already sent a letter uh, to Amazon uh, setting, demanding a date uh, to schedule the beginning of collective bargaining, uh, because they know Amazon is going to drag their feet. So I would say it's both uh, celebratory, but also, you know, there's more work to do. And
0: uh, Jordan, I'd love to get your take on this, because if you've talked to a lot of workers involved in different organizing campaigns, and, and my experience has been that one of the arguments that works the best that that management gives to those workers is the union is just they're a bunch of outsiders. They're going to come from out of town. They're going to put a bunch of dues on on you. Then they're going to take your money and they're going to you know, live lavish lifestyles on the back of your work. Now, I don't I don't think that's a fair uh, criticism, but that's kind of the management line on what unions are. By being an independent union, a- ALU really kind of eliminated that the ability of management to have that argument because it's like okay you're going to be paying dues, but it's just going to be going into this you know independent union that is just that is just you there's no there's no other person that you can say it is so how 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 significant do you think that was that the workers could say if the dues are going to us, not to some gigantic union elsewhere but or what else made it so that smalls and, and his team of organizers were able to win this whereas you know, much better funded unions have failed in the past.
8: Yeah, I think that uh, specifically Christian Smalls and Derek Palmer, who uh, were the heads of the Amazon Labor Union, Christian Smalls actually was part of the group that opened this warehouse four years ago. And he trained and supervised a lot of the workers. Uh, Derek Palmer has been with Amazon for five, six years. So I think having uh, workers that know the building, know a lot of the other workers, uh, it established an instant credibility uh, for at least other workers to listen to them. Uh, whereas, you know, in the Bessemer, Alabama effort, it was an outside union coming in. Uh, so it goes to that kind of outsider. They're not as connected to conditions on the ground. They don't have relationships with the workers. Uh, the other thing, and it's 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 a bunch of little things, but they make an impact. You know, they, they started using donations to deliver free food uh, every day uh, to workers at the warehouse these are paycheck to paycheck workers. A lot of them travel two to three hours uh, from other bur- bur- bureaus in uh, boroughs in New York City, ferry, bus, subway, just to get there. Uh, so getting, you know, a free meal every day. Uh, and I witnessed that line for free food. That's where uh, Amazon labor union organizers connected with the workers, passed out literature on the unions with um You know, the food, things like that. So it kind of established the camaraderie. And you mix that with Amazon's, uh, you know, just union busting like I've never seen. Uh, You had on one side people doing for you if you're a worker and helping you. And on the other side, Amazon flooding the zone with anti-union propaganda.
6: So Jordan, um, you know, New York is a Democratic state. Prides itself, as many Democratic states do, blue states, as being for the people, um, having more regulation that is supposed to be better for giving workers better working conditions. So, this is in New York. Clearly, you know, the, the, I would imagine New York State does have actually quite a few controls and maybe even higher minimum wage and and more regulations. What do these Amazon workers expect to get out of the union that they're not getting out of the government legislation already in place in New York?
8: Yeah, I mean, the government legislation only goes so far because, frankly, the National Labor Relations Board uh, doesn't have much teeth, uh, as we saw in Alabama. I mean, Amazon was uh, ruled that they broke the law in the original uh, union a campaign, But nothing, you know, there was no real penalty for them other than a redo. Uh, so union, uh, it's more of a cultural thing in New York as far as it's a, more of a union town has some of the highest union percentage in, in America among states. Uh, but I, I don't really know if uh, any regulations in New York protected them more. They did file uh, 16. Uh, compl- uh formal complaints with the national labor relations board new york office uh and the nlrb ruled in their favor for several things uh but you know i think yes being in new york helped them but i really think it was their campaign uh them connecting with workers uh the food distribution they actually made uh specific types of food for certain workers like west african rice uh, meals for a lot of the Latino workforce. I think that really made a big difference. Um, so, yes, New York being a union town, it definitely helped, but I don't think any regulations per se uh, helped them win.
1: What were the, uh, you said, Amazon engaged in, like, just crazy, over-the-top uh, propaganda? Uh, you know, what What specifically were the practices that Amazon was doing to discourage this union drive that that you found so objectionable?
8: Yeah, so uh, I reported for Status Quo months ago. I mean, you you literally couldn't go to the bathroom in this warehouse without union-busting signs. It was literally in the bathroom, like as you're in the uh, toilet. Uh, They had it all over uh, the bathroom. They were confiscating union pamphlets in the break room, which is uh, against... and LRB uh, legislation. Uh, they were also putting cameras outside by the union tent, so surveilling uh, w- workers and what they were doing. Uh, they also, um, you know, during this campaign, were flooding the warehouse with union busting uh, consultants, as they called it, uh, who were pulling workers aside off their shift, uh, in some cases for a half hour, 40 minutes, giving them kind of lectures against the union, which actually penalized the workers because they're clocked. Uh, by the second uh, for productivity. Uh, they also, towards the end, were calling workers at their house uh, to sway them against the union, Mail, sending mailers uh, to workers' homes against the union, uh, and also these union-busting consultants were basically telling the workers, you know, if this goes through, we're going to have to cut hours, we might have to cut staff, benefits won't be as great. And the final, the final thing, which I really believe, based on talking to workers, backfired big time, they were having mandatory union-busting sessions every day, including the overnight shift, people sitting through half-hour sessions at 4.30 in the morning. And I spoke with workers who were literally forced to be in those sessions 10, 11, 12 times, hearing the same propaganda. And, you know, it's kind of human psychology. You keep telling people not to do something. It makes them think, well, maybe I, maybe I want to do it. Uh, so I think all of that collectively really, really started workers that were on the fence— made them more uh, open to listening to what the union had to say. Uh, You you
0: also reported on uh, the uh, criticism by Christian Smalls of some New York politicians, particularly uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, for not showing up to an an event. Can you talk a little bit about what the status of of that is now and what was was behind that?
8: Yeah, over the summer, uh, I covered ALU's first press conference, and they had promoted uh, AOC coming which obviously could draw more media attention th- uh, buzz uh, and then when i got there you know they she had canceled on them the night before citing security concerns uh you know christian was diplomatic about it at the time uh i think that coupled with after not showing up uh, to the rally that she had confirmed for um they couldn't even get her to tweet out uh, support uh link to their website Uh, in the in the final months. So uh, that uh, include not just her, uh, Jamal Bowman, who represents uh, New York, Mondaire Jones, who's a New York congressman. Uh, So I think that collectively, uh, particularly not so much. Yeah, they wanted help with donations, but a lot of those workers that they were trying to convince are younger and, and aren't really into politics, but they know AOC. So AOC either showing up or at least doing some digital stuff, Uh, They felt could have helped them in uh, connecting with workers, particularly the younger workers who don't know much about unions and, you know, feel they don't have a lot of other job opportunities. So we're more open to Amazon's, uh, you know, union busting. So, uh, yeah, AOC cited security concerns, this and that. So, you know, I kind of asked her, well, (laughs) what's the security concern about tweeting? Uh, I I didn't get a response on that one.
0: (laughs) And the the fight is really just starting because now they, you know, they've got to get a contract next. And like you said, there's another, another vote coming up. Do you know, one, do you know the status of the relationship or are, you know, are the democratic because there are also a lot of state senators and uh, state assembly members, you know, who could be able to, you know, push this forward as well. Do you know if there's a coalition building there and what's your sense of how the the second warehouse is going to go?
8: Well, uh, more perfect union has a tracker and, uh, Unless something's changed, as, as of our discussion, uh, no one in the Democratic leadership <laughs> uh, has commented on this. And, of mm. course, no, no Republicans have. Uh, you've had Bernie, Ed Markey, you know, a couple people that you would expect uh, to congratulate them. Uh, in New York, uh, you know, I was talking with uh, Christian the other day. Uh, a lot of city council folk and people who were also kind of silent are now reaching out to the union, so kind of normal Johnny come lately politics uh, you know now they 're kind of doing the right thing uh, so I think particularly local new york politics there's there 's more uh, support now uh, public support among politicians who weren 't saying anything before and uh, the second uh, the second vote you know can 't really predict for certain. Uh, I really think it depends what Amazon does. Between now and the vote, which will happen uh, towards the end of this month, uh, if Amazon goes scorched earth, uh, starts maybe you know retaliating against uh, workers, which we've seen Starbucks do, firing some of the union organizers, uh, that might you know worry uh, people, uh, workers who are eligible to vote in the next warehouse. But as of now, if nothing dramatic changes, I expect that to be victorious too, because it's right across the street and it's the same union tent, you know, just talking to workers in the other direction.
1: Mm. Well, the, the Biden White House has actually voiced its support for the newly formed union. Let's watch that.
7: Well, the president was glad to see workers ensure their voices are heard uh, with respect to important workplace decisions. He believes firmly that every worker in every state must have a free and fair choice to join a union and the right to bargain collectively with their employer. Uh, The Amazon workers in Staten Island made their choice to organize a grassroots union and bargain for better jobs and a better
1: life. So uh, Biden, you know, speaking up or through Psaki, uh, you know, what do you make of that?
8: Uh, I mean, talk is cheap. I'll give Biden uh, the benefit on he, he has appointed uh, within labor positions uh, a lot, you know, a lot stronger uh, pro-labor um, uh, kind of bureaucrats. Uh, so credit to him for that. But, you know, they you know, he has not lifted a finger as far as the PRO Act, uh, which could have been folded into to build back better or separate legislation, at least fight for it. Uh, he, so, you you know, they could give that kind of uh, uh, low-decibel congratulations, <laughs> but uh, mm-hmm. they haven't done anything mm-hmm. on the PRO Act, and they certainly haven't done anything as far as, I mean, it's in the news all the time uh, as far as Amazon's working conditions. I reported over the summer workers were fainting and being uh, carted off on stretchers. Uh, the New York Times had a big piece a couple months ago. So, you know, they they, see, they seemed a lot more loud as far as the Chicago Uh, teachers union and COVID than congratulating Amazon Mm. workers.
1: Well, thank you so much, Jordan Sheridan. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Tomorrow on Rising, we'll continue to follow the latest out of Ukraine. And of
0: course, we'll tell you what's on our radars. Plus, Rachel Bovard will weigh in on the implications of Elon Musk buying that 9% stake in Twitter.
6: Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so that you never miss any of our content. And for those of you who like to listen on the go, you can see here we've got a podcast so make sure that you subscribe and share our podcast as well and one last thing before we go before we say goodbye our executive producer casey brady had a birthday yesterday you know guys i'm big into birthday. so happy birthday to our wonderful executive yes. producer who does so much amazing work for the show uh just so happy birthday another trip around the sun
0: happy birthday Casey. Mm-hmm.
1: we have a really great team the people who work here are fantastic. Really the best people The
6: best best people. It's true. It's true, though. It's true. (laughs) Actually, true.
1: All right. See y'all next time.
6: (laughs) Bye bye.